Titus chapter 2. I have some good news for you this morning. Jesus is coming back. <laughs> could be morning, could be night, could be noon. So you better be living right. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 through 13 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we humbly approach your throne, asking you to open our eyes that we might see the truth of your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us minds to understand it and hearts to obey it. Father, I thank you for the promise of the second coming. It is such a hope-giving promise that we can cling to in the times of suffering and trial in life. Father, I pray that this would be ever imminent in our thinking and on the horizon and that we might live as if your coming could be today, even this hour. And so, Lord, I pray and ask that you would use me to encourage your people today by the truth of the second coming. And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. This week, the New York Times published an article entitled, Teen Girls Report Record Levels of Sadness the CDC Finds. The article states that nearly three in five teenage girls felt persistent sadness in 2021, and one in three girls seriously considered attempting suicide, according to data released Monday by the Center for Disease Control. It went on to say that about 57% of girls reported feeling sadness every day for at least two weeks during the previous year. This survey was given to 17,000 high school students and found that the rates of sadness are the highest reported in a decade. And sadly, that is just another reminder that there is a lack of hope in this world. There is an overwhelming, a prevailing feeling of hopelessness among people, young and old. Hope is the confident expectation of something good to come. And when we lose hope and we feel hopeless, we don't think anything good is going to come. We think things are just going to keep getting worse. And whatever our situation is, is not going to be reconciled. It's not going to be fixed. It's not going to be turned around. We have to realize that human hope has been under siege by sin since the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve with abundant hope. They had everything good to look forward to, and he warned them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that they would eat, that they would die. And in some ways, hope would die. And yet, they disobeyed God. They brought sin into the world. Sin has been eroding hope ever since then, so that it is very hard for people to find real and lasting hope in this world. I would go on to say that it is impossible to find real and lasting hope in this world outside of Jesus Christ. 
Now, the world doesn't want to admit that. They can't admit that because they would say it's hopeless. If you don't put your hope in Christ, then there's no point to life. But if you break down their theories, their postulation, their, uh, their systems, you'll find that it is hopeless. For instance, the theory of evolution is quite hopeless. There is no point to life. At best, they are trying to describe the origins of life, but they can't tell you the why of life. It's just simply a collection of random cells that found the right combination and began to work together. But the Bible tells us that there is hope in life. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You, my friend, were created with a purpose. You, my friend, were created in the image of God. There is hope in that. There's no hope in evolution. I'm here to tell you that there is hope in Christ. Real, true, enduring hope. Sustaining hope. We've already seen that the birth of Christ gives us hope. The life of Christ gives us hope. Even the death of Christ gives us hope. And certainly the resurrection of Christ gives us hope. Today we're going to see that the second coming of Christ gives us hope. In this letter to Titus, the Apostle Paul is instructing Titus on some big-ticket issues, you might say. He talks about how that he is to ordain elders and the qualifications for that. He talks about reproving those who are, are false professors and reprobate to the faith. He talks about the, how the men should behave and conduct themselves and the women. He talks about salvation. And in this letter, he talks about the second coming of Christ. Think about it. In this short theological exposition, he is inspired of the Holy Spirit to include the hope of the second coming. Now, just, just for a moment, I love to frame it in the context of Scripture because that's how we're supposed to take the Bible. But in the context of Scripture, this is three chapters out of 1,189 chapters. Three chapters. 46 verses. 46 verses out of 31,102 verses. Less than two pages in your Bible, unless you got the super giant print edition. Barely 900 words in the English, less in the original Greek. And in that, he included the hope of the second coming. To me, that speaks volumes. To me, that reminds me that this is an important issue for every believer. Hey, hey, Titus, there's some things you've got to straighten out in the churches of Crete. I mean, there are some things that are lacking, and you need to put them in order. That's how it begins. And he says, but remind them of the hope of the second coming, that they are looking for a blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The, the text... This text on hope uh, in Christ's return is really framed in three dimensions of time. It is the past, it is the present, and it is the future. And so I just want to take that as my outline today, and hopefully that will help you take it with you when you leave this place. Number one, the past basis of this hope. Okay, Justin, you're telling me to put hope in the second coming of Christ. And man, isn't that kind of like a pipe dream? Isn't that like wishful thinking? Isn't that like, you know, someday, sometime, somewhere, something good is going to happen? I mean, like, where's the material that I can touch and feel the tangibleness of this hope? Well, let me point you back, as the Bible does, to the past basis of this hope. Notice verse 11, it, it began this way, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation 
hath appeared to all men. Notice the past tense. It hath appeared. It has appeared. It appeared in the past. What appeared? Well, we know that the grace of God that brought salvation was the incarnation of Christ. It was the first coming of Christ. It was the past appearance of Christ. It's a reference to his first coming. And so before he gets to the second coming, he points them back and he says, let me remind you that the grace of God that brings salvation to every man has appeared to us. This gives us hope. This gives us hope because when he came the first time, He brought grace and salvation for mankind. The introduction to Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John says it this way. It says in John 1.17, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. God is a God of grace. We find grace mentioned for the very first time in Genesis chapter 6. But what we discover is that Jesus delivers grace to this world in an unprecedented way. When Christ came in the flesh, God extends grace and displays grace in a way that was unprecedented before. And so Jesus Christ brought the grace of salvation to you and I. The first advent of Jesus Christ is the greatest display of grace in the history of the world. You cannot find a greater display of grace in the history of the world. What what do we mean by grace? Well, grace is undeserved kindness, unmerited favor, an unearned gift that somebody gives to you. And out of all the acts of grace that we could ever cite in all of history, I'm telling you, this is the greatest display of grace. It is that Christ came the first time. Think about it. The party who was wronged, which is God, who was offended and had every right to pursue justice. By all rights, God had had the opportunity to pursue justice against the offenders. The offenders made no movement to reconcile themselves to the one they had offended. Instead, the offended party, the, the victim, if you will, It's the one who took the initiative and went on to make the supreme sacrifice in order to make reconciliation possible for the offenders. It is totally antithetical. That is why you have so many different world religions and they all have this one continuity about them. You've got to do something to get to God. Their works-based salvation. Why? Because that's what the human mind tells us. That's what logic tells us. That's what reason tells us. You can't tell me that we're the ones that offended God and God's the one that comes and makes things right with us. That doesn't make any sense. What makes sense is if I have to pray so many prayers or attend church so many times or get down on my knees and crawl to Mecca and make sacrifices and do all these things so that I can make reconciliation with God. And God said, no, you could never make it. No matter how far you crawled on your knees, you simply cannot repay the debt that is owed. And so in the greatest display of grace, God said, I will pay the debt on your behalf. And I will pay it at the greatest cost. I will send my son to die for you. John three sixteen. we all know it. 
for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But listen to what verse 17 says. Jesus goes on to say in John 3, 17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so this look back at the past appearance of Christ gives me hope in his second coming. Because he came with grace and he brought salvation to us instead of coming with justice and bringing judgment on us. Do you understand that that first coming of Christ establishes that God comes to us in good will and that he comes to us in grace and he comes to us bringing salvation. He could have come in wrath. He could have come seeking justice. He could have come delivering judgment for our sins, but that's not how he came the first time. And so I have hope in his second coming because of the past appearance. Number two, the present basis of our hope. And so just follow the text. Look at verse 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Notice the present tense. In this present world. We might say at this present time. And so first, hey, remember that he appeared the first time with grace and salvation. Now, here's how you can live in this present world in a way that sustains your hope. Christ taught us how to live in between his first coming and his second coming in a way that gives us hope. Because that's really the consequences, isn't it? It is in between the first coming and the second coming that you and I find ourselves and it's in this place where our hope keeps getting drained. It's like our hope bucket has a hole in it. And every time we get that thing filled up, man, it drains out before we can get it back home. And so how do we maintain hope between the first coming and the second coming of Christ? I mean, we've been talking about his second coming since his first coming, 2,000 years. I remember when I was a kid, man, they got all hyped up on the second coming of Jesus. And they were showing movies to us as kids. And, man, people, you know, they would just disappear. And everything would be left. And planes are crashing. And cars are crashing. And, man, look, Jesus could be coming back. And, and we got real jacked up on that in the 70s and 80s. And then it kind of died down, didn't it? So that we're like, well, maybe we shouldn't be talking so much about the second coming of Christ because he hasn't came back yet. Let me tell you something, friends. The second coming of Christ is what sustains our hope in this present time. It is understanding that he is coming again. This word that is used in verse 12, teaching, is the Greek word that is used for a parent training their child. And just like all parents train their children, we teach them that there are some things that you are to do. And there are some things that you are not to do. Don't touch a hot stove. Do brush your teeth, right? And so there are basics. That's the basic of parenting. If you don't know, there's your lesson and go raise children, right? <laughs> don't do this. Do do this. Similarly, uh, there are some basic instructions that God gives us, teaching us as his children that will make life better, 
Why do I tell my child not to touch a hot stove but to brush their teeth? Well, because the hot stove will burn them. It's going to hurt, and it could scar them, and it could permanently damage them. And I tell them to brush their teeth because they're going to need those things to chew up solid foods. And they're really going to want them later in life when they're trying to find a mate. And they can look their most attractive. So why is God telling us this stuff? Because he wants to make our life better. He wants to make our life more enjoyable. He wants to make our life more hopeful. And so, he says, deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Like Nancy Reagan, just say no. Just say no to temptations that are ungodly. Temptations that are worldly. Uh, why? Because they will erode your hope. If you don't deny ungodliness and worldly lust, let me tell you something. You're going to find out that the Rolling Stones had it right when they sang, I can't get no satisfaction. There is nothing that you can do in this life that will satisfy you. You see, if we don't learn to deny the ungodliness and worldly lust, it's going to erode our hope with dissatisfaction and disappointments. I and mean, if you're pursuing that, you'll have a few good times. But let me tell you something. The, the letdown is way worse than the high it ever gets you. And the damage that it does is cumulative. That is, it compounds with age. And what looked like a fun thing to do when you were a teenager or college student is a pitiful life when you're 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. An addiction that you can't get rid of. And so God says, look, I want you to have hope. So I've given you this foundation of hope in the past. I want you to maintain this hope in the present. So there's some things that you shouldn't do. Deny ungodliness and worldly lust. And then he says, do this. Live soberly, righteously, and godly. It's interesting, the word that is used there, live, carries with it the idea of enjoying real life, not a cheap substitute. Like God says, there's a, a real life that is out there. Jesus described it in John chapter 10 when he says, I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Life without Christ is not real life. It's a cheap imitation of life. It's a disappointment. It will disappoint you every single time. And so God says, I want you to live the life in Christ, and I want you to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Soberly means with self-control. Man, I'm telling you, the older I get, the more I realize self-control helps life, right? At this age... You eat too much, you can't sleep good, you, you drink too much, good stuff, like water and coffee, and you, your bladder, it's, it's getting you up all night long, right? Like, you're learning, moderation is your friend, i got to have some self-control in some things. When I was 16, 17 year old, I could live off of Little Debbie's and Mountain Dew, and still have abs, now if I brush up against one, I grow a new love handle. You know, and so God is saying, if you want to maintain hope, you do have to exercise some self-control. Live soberly. Live righteously. What does that mean? Well, it means live according to the right standards. So we might say, by the book. 
It is basic instructions for life. God has given us his word. And if we will live rightly, if we seek to align our lives with this book, it will increase our hope in life. You know, in construction, you have some tools that help you do things right. And one of them is called a level. And the level is this device that has, has alcohol in a tube with an air bubble in it. And it will show you if something is level. And if not, the bubble will be off to one side or to the other, outside of the lines. And if you want your house to look good and straight, and you want your walls and your doors to open rightly, well, you, you've got to use the level, and you've got to level everything up as you go. And if it doesn't match the level, you know what you don't do? You don't take the level and pull it on your knee and bend it to match the house. You do the work to make the house match the level. This is the level. Don't take it and bend it to match your life. Don't do it without it. Man, you roll up on a job. Man, we, we built this place without one level. I, I believe you. <laughs> and sadly, a lot of times people want to build their whole life without using the right standard. And so God says live soberly with some self-control. Live righteously according to the right standard. And live godly. Godly means closely pursuing God. Closely pursuing. It doesn't mean living a monastic life. It doesn't mean that you've got to trade in your cool clothes for some sort of frock and that you've got to isolate yourself and walk around doing Gregorian chants all day. Godly means that you're pursuing a relationship with God, that, that you are following closely to Him, that you want to get to know Him better, that you understand that there is more to Him to find out, and that you can draw closer to Him. That, my friends, will give you and I hope in this present age. Think about it this way. If we live like citizens of heaven, we will not feel at home in this world. It is when we try to live like we are at home in this world that things get really hopeless. But if we live like we're citizens of heaven, we won't feel at home in this world. And we will long and hope for the second coming when Christ comes to take us home to our Father. And it will give us hope in this present age. And then third, the future basis of this hope is in verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope. And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I would just say, again, notice the future tense. Looking for. And so, past tense, he hath appeared. Present tense, in this present world. Future tense, looking for the glorious appearing. Looking for that happy hope. That word blessed there, it also means happy. It's a happy hope. It's a blessed hope. It is something that is joy-giving. It infuses my life with, with happiness and, and with joy. The second coming is a key component of the Christian faith. If you say, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I'm trying to follow Christ, I, I have a set of beliefs that are non-negotiable, then the second coming has to be in those beliefs. Why? Well, just the sheer volume 
of times it is mentioned in the Bible. Most people are shocked to find out that there are over 1,800 references to Christ's second coming in the Bible. Over 1,800, I think 1845, according to Dr. David Jeremiah. 1,800, imagine that. We're reading through the Bible in a year, right? If you're following the Bible reading program, that means over this next year, over the next 365 days, you will encounter 1,800 references to the second coming of Christ. Be hard to miss that. Be hard to say, well, that's not important. <laughs> that, that, that must just be a sideline we don't have to worry about. On average, the second coming is found in one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament. And so when you get to the New Testament, uh, we're getting closer and the emphasis is getting stronger. And so one out of every 30 verses, we're seeing the second coming of Christ. Uh, Christ himself spoke of his second coming 21 times. Think about all the, the, the limited words that Jesus said that are recorded for us. And in those records, there are 21 direct citations that he is coming again in fact and this one is astounding the prophecies of Christ's second coming outnumber the prophecies to his first coming eight to one and I know he came the first time so I'm eight times more sure that he's coming the second time I mean if you just jump to the end of the book you know what you'll find? You'll find he that which testify these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. That's how it ends. It's the emphasis. He's coming again. He's coming back for you. He has left you here, but he has left you here for a period, and he's left you here for a purpose, and you have a task to do while you're here, but he is coming back. You say, okay, that's great. I, I, I believe it. I believe he's coming back, but why does that give me hope? I mean, I haven't been perfect. What, what if he comes back? Is he going to get on to me? Well, let me just tell you what he's going to do when he comes back. He's coming back to get us and take us to heaven. John 14, Jesus said, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Hey, what's Jesus doing right now in heaven? Well, next week we're going to find out that he's advocating for you and I day and night, but he's also prepared for us a home. And he's going to come back and he's going to get us and he's going to take us to our heavenly home oh that's hope giving man i tell you what that's encouraging i don't know about you but i get tired of homeowner maintenance <laughs> i'd be glad to get in the house jesus built he's coming to raise the dead and to reunite us with our loved ones first thessalonians 4 14 through 17 says we say to you by the word of the lord that that at his coming the last trump will sound the dead in christ will be rise first and we which are alive and remain will be called up in the air to meet the lord together with him so shall we ever be with the lord man that gives me hope it, it means that not only is jesus coming back for me but everybody that i know and love who died before me in christ he's going to resurrect them and i'm going to be reunited with them i'm going to see those loved ones and we're going to go to heaven together with jesus
Not only that, he's coming to deliver justice and judgment to evildoers. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10 says, hey, he's coming with a flame of fire against all of those that disobey the gospel. Well, you know, that encourages me too because there's a lot of injustice in this world. And the sad fact is, is that there are some injustices that will never be made right in human courts. The, the score, the debt will never be settled uh, during our lifetime. But when Jesus comes back, he's also coming back to bring justice. And that he is going to deliver that justice to those evildoers. And then he's coming to reward the righteous. Revelation twenty two twelve says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. Well, there are rewards for the faithful. Remember Paul said to Timothy, I, I'm ready to depart. I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. And he says, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, but not for me only, but to everyone who loves his appearing. And so listen, faithful Christian, the one that has served when others stopped serving, the one that took the high road when others took the low road, the one that feels like they are always giving grace to others, there is a reward for you. Jesus is bringing it with him. And he's going to reward you for your faithful service to him. The second coming only gives hope to those who have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's the only, that's the only people who will get hope out of this. Only ones. And so I would say to you, if you have fear about his return, you might need to get right with God. Look, I'm not trying to get all preachy on you, although that is my title, preacher. I'm just telling you, that that's a diagnostic tool. If when you think about Jesus coming back, you're like, oh, I don't want him to come back right now. The way I'm living my life, I'd be afraid to see him. Well, you might need to get right with God. You might need to get saved, or you might need to repent. You see, because those who are living for the Lord... Not perfectly, but trying to live for him. It gives us hope that Jesus is coming back and we're going to be delivered from the oppressiveness of this sinful world. And we are going to see the one who died for us. The good news is that you can turn your fear into hope in an instant. All it requires is you repenting of your sin and receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And any bit of fear that you have can be turned into hope that he's coming again. Would you bow with me? As we bow our heads for just a moment. I do want to say one more time as your head is bowed and your eyes are closed. If you're here today and you are not sure that you would go to heaven when Jesus comes back. I want you to know how you can be. You simply admit that you are a sinner. God, I know that I have sinned, and I know that my sins would send me to hell, but I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me, that he paid for my sins, and right here, right now, the best that I know how, I am putting my faith in Jesus Christ. My friends, it is that simple.
The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So if you're here today and you're not certain, then I would ask you to make it certain. Come to Christ today. If you're here today and you're saved but you've gotten away from the Lord and the thought of his return gives you a little bit of a pause, I'd encourage you just to get right. It's a sweet thing. All the devil lies to you. Your flesh resists it, tells you that it's a, it's a difficult thing. But I'm telling you, there's nothing sweeter than when a child comes home. The father is waiting with open arms. And if you're here today and you're a faithful one, you've been following the Lord, take heart, friend. Jesus is coming back. He's got a reward for you. Let me tell you something. The greatest reward is that we get to be with him. Oh, Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for pulling back the curtain and allowing us to see what is up ahead. You know the frailty of our hearts and our minds and how that we often are given to despair and discouragement at the circumstances that we go through. And I'm so thankful that you put in your word some 1800 times a promise a reminder a testimony that you are coming back that Jesus who came the first time with grace and salvation said 21 times he's coming back I'm so thankful that when you finished out the book you left with this promise I am coming quickly so that we can say with John even so come Lord Jesus Father, I pray that your second coming would give hope to your people today. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand.